tonight on Arena. We review season three, third and final of Afterlife, and Pat Bourne goes just outside the door for a new anthology, Local Wonders. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Local Wonders is a new anthology of poetry edited by Pat Bourne from Chris Anji to Enda Wiley. More than 100 poets were charged with the task of taking inspiration from their locale, from the things that have seen them through the last couple of years. The result is a feel-good anthology. I don't know if that's the right word. A map of the island at a particular point in time. The island and beyond, it must be said, at a particular point in time. And I'm delighted to say that Pat Bourne is with me in studio. Now, I presume, Pat, before we get stuck into the anthology, I presume there were no poems here that you had to ban in terms of any isms <laughs> that that came up, well, no, but I suppose one's one's eye does fall on on on, on certain things, and uh, uh, one gravitates towards subjects that might be somewhat elevating. Um, but uh, no, there was there was no need for a blanket ban to be placed at any stage. Yeah, okay, um, and um, I presume you're a believer in put on the play, and oh, I absolutely. Or, well, what are you a believer you know, in? Going back to that discussion we were maybe listening to earlier, yeah, yeah I, I think you know the text on its own is one thing, and it has a kind of an authority, and and readers as well as authors know that when you see something in print, it's bigger than the person that made it. Yeah. But I think it's a different thing then again when you take it on stage, as you well know, because then you have to live the characters and the perspective of the characters, and the characters interrogate each other, the audience interrogates the characters. So nothing is sacrosanct at that stage. The play so is the thing. The play is the thing. We shouldn't be afraid of the text. Yeah. I, I believe. Do with the production. Do your interrogating Indeed. there. Okay, that's another day's work yeah, and another is, day's yeah, yeah. In, in, uh, discussion. Let us let us go to what you were doing with local wonders, and uh, to a certain extent. This is, was it what you asked the poets to do? Would you look out the window? Would you look out the window and see what's under your nose and what has been under your nose for ages and that maybe you've been so busy doing other things that you haven't had time there's or a little bit the of, silence to, to kind of see it. Yeah, there's a little bit of that in it. I mean, it's been quoted by wiser men than me and ladies than me uh, over the years, but uh, Michael Longley's line, if I knew where poetry came from, I'd go there, kind of supposes... I mean, it plays with the idea mm. that we suppose that, you know, that one has to travel a distance to have a revelation or a vision. And and we all kind of feel that, you know, we, we've all dabbled and sketched and took nice photos on holidays in Madeira or somewhere. And it's easier to see, it's easier to see that um, uh, strangeness, that oddity, that surprise, that revelation when you're outside of your own jurisdiction. Um, but of course, what we all felt very much was the map of our jurisdiction was, in, you know, it was tattooed onto us over the last two <laughs> years or so. We couldn't escape it. And all of us found ourselves going around in some kind of circles. And that process reveals things. Now, sometimes the things it reveals are not very pleasant. Mm. Um, and we we have that sense of being trapped and we're walking the six square metres or whatever it is of our, our, our isolated cell. But other times we notice things that we wouldn't have noticed before. We didn't have to notice before because there's an element of volition in this as well. We want to see the blade of sunlight like, yeah. like, come into the window in, in the cell in Reading Jail. We, we will it. To, to, to exist and in fact our whole uh, Neolithic culture is built around building the monuments that will record these things happening that's very much a local wonder as well something like Newgrange mm. um, so it can be local 
the, 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 the presence can be local, but the origin can be universal. Let's put it like that. And, and I mean, this is a broad parish of, of poets that you you sent out, you, you, you Facebooked effectively looking yeah, we for submissions. Yeah, in some ways I think you could say it's a kind of a social media anthology. Normally, normally an anthology is a trawling back through the, the, the previous publications that, mm. that exist, etc. And maybe a little bit of commissioning work. And, and that was more or less the plan that was kind of how I was thinking insofar as there is a plan. Um, but when, when the call went out, when we put out the call, I was so heartened uh, and, and sometimes surprised by the range of work coming in and a lot of it from emerging writers, up and coming mm. writers, because in a sense, they're probably the people who are more active, most active on social media. Um, but what, what resulted from it, of course, was... Uh, in a sense, a map of the country at a particular time. I won't say a pandemic anthology because it's not a pandemic anthology. And I don't think I don't think a pandemic anthology as such would have great value outside of the pandemic. And I am looking forward to, to the end of the pandemic, but I'm also looking forward to these poems lasting. So well, I think of course, you know, everything then would be called a post-pandemic well, anthology. Well, of course, it, of course it will. And we'll have the distance from mm. it and then it will be it will be dated. And, and, and as we know, something can really reflect the moment of its birth, mm. but its relevance has to reach beyond that. So some of these poems could have been about you know, you might say any momentous occasion right. in somebody's life. And they have to ignite like that. So so there are, the pandemic is there, COVID is there, the restrictions are there, all of those things are there, social distancing, but they're not the subject matter. I like to think of any good poem as being what orbits the subject matter. It's not the statue at the centre, it's the activity mm. around the statue in the Uffizi Gallery. That's the interest, really. It's, it's what it provokes from the listener, the viewer, the reader. Let's have a read. Of, you, you've chosen a few poems for us. We might get to all of them. We'll get to, we'll get to some of them for sure. Half Moon Swim Club, who is this from and, and what was it about this that, that spoke to you? Kelly, uh, how do we say Kelly? I think second? it's Kelly Michaels. Michaels. Um, yeah, um, uh, I, I don't know much about her, which is also... Lovely. A good um, thing in terms of you were reading the poems. I was reading the poems blind, blind, blind yeah. as they say. Yeah. And um, I, 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 I suppose I was looking for poems that had a sense of place very often because I think place was the thing that we were very mm. aware of, th- th- that we were restricted to certain places, that we hadn't access to other places. And also there's that whole idea, particularly in the in the inherited world, if you like, the Irish language uh, uh thread through English language poetry on this island, the Din Shanakas, and the the connection between the poem and the place and the poem of the place and how one speaks to and through the other, etc. So this is a poem. A lot of the poems, I have to say, are about doing, running, jumping, standing still. Mm. You know, they're about the things that we found ourselves doing and repeating. Um, And they're very often outdoor activities. They're very often within kind of reach of the house the, the begin at gardening and the end at climbing Karen Thule and, <laughs> and that kind of reach mm. um, but uh, some of them help us or allow us to express our isolation but others connect us to others in interesting ways Half Moon Swim Club We are looking in the wrong direction Dozens of us in iridescent swim caps bobbing over Dublin Bay bathing ourselves in the bare night, 
We are looking up at the clouds, the skies, the heavens, as if we have forgotten how to look ahead, so used to the cold, the pale sting on our skin, against the black, dark, the bald darkness, water lapping at our chins, until, all at once, we see it. The moon, blooming in front of us, a chrysanthemum of flame, its warm arch rising from the sea, colossal and awake, climbing the sky, electrified in full-blooded light, a keyhole to a different world, pulling us closer, pulling us forward, out of our year-long sleep. There is a madness, a lunacy in wanting to be alive, to dive headfirst into the dark, inhale the salt, the tide, the burning air of twilight, to watch the moon lift over a hushed city, its reflection spreading before us like an open road. I mean, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic image of this group, this uh, women's group who meet to swim the, with the bobbing bathing caps. Yeah, it's, it's a almost like a group opening. of seals. Yeah. Do you know, it's that sudden kind of dislocation. And then you can see that chrysanthemum aflame, the, the moon on the water. There, there's there's a, a sequence there of images that make you see again and that are kind of undeniably real. You couldn't have... The mm. author couldn't have written this poem. Couldn't have made it up, it. as it were. <laughs> yeah. do, do you know what I mean? And yet they're so, the, the, the images are so fresh and so engaging. But what also struck me about it is, is really how it's kind, of, it, it's kind of asking a question at the beginning. It's still asking loads more questions Absolutely. by the time you get to the end. And that's what makes, because there, no, there are no easy answers there here. There are no we easy answers. That. But there's enough, there's enough interesting enough hint there. That idea of the moon, its reflection spreading before us like an open road. You can see that, that perspective that the moon creates this road so that there's a road ahead. You know, it's a danger for someone in my position who thinks he knows mm. what the poem is about to try to interpret it. But you can get that sense that that there is a potential answer, that mm. it, it is about a way of seeing, that we're not just in the moment we're in. You know, this was this is what, what happened to so many of us in the 2K and in the 5K restrictions. First of all, we felt locked into them. But then we started to, like somebody with a, with a microscope, we started to yeah. see at a much greater depth and we started to notice things. I could have made an anthology here about poems about birds, you know, Emily yeah. Dickinson said, hope is the thing with feathers. So many people were at their back windows in poems, looking at birds coming into the garden, what the bird did next, what the cat did, watching the bird, etc. Yeah, Paddy, Paddy Bush has, has the specifics of looking out and saying... He has, he has even a poem about bird watchers, yeah. about what, the people who watch the bird. So there's a whole kind of sequence, <laughs> mm. you know, there's a, there's a, a domino effect there. But, but it, is, it is that it's a call to our ability to pay attention. I think that was one of the really big things. Yeah. And I think those of us who struggled at times through the last two years, very often it was that we couldn't hold on, we couldn't connect. And, and a lot of these poems are kind of hints 
about what you can look at and how you can look at it. I mean, even if there's one that struck me early on as well as Trish Bennett, who is who is one called My Post Lives, and she she's kind of looking at where the post has come where from. Where is it heading off yeah. to? Yeah. <laughs> where is yeah, it yeah. Going? And suddenly the post can go wherever it likes. There's no ban on, on yeah, the... There's no 5k it, limit on it or 2k it, limit. by extension, there's no limit then on the, on the imagination's the point, yeah. ability to follow off with that post, you know? The, the other thing was, you know, there is a mix here, a real mix of very established posts, you know, people like Darren Paul, Paul Meehan, all in there with new and relatively unknown poems. How important is it to get that in an anthology? It's, or was it in this in particular? Why uh, it I think in this one it was really important because I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I remember n- noticing at a funeral many years ago of a young school kid, uh, a number of her friends got up to read poems who probably wouldn't have read poems and or, re- or, or, or you know, read their own poems, mm. uh, or let alone read anybody else's poems. They probably wouldn't have been intimately connected with the idea that there was a resource and a consolation and, and a sense of renewal in poetry. I think a lot of people felt this now and there are a number of people, quite a number of people in this anthology publishing for the first time, possibly even writing for the first time or writing in a serious way for the first time because the situation that we have come through or are coming through mm. provoke that. And um, I think it also allowed people to write in a strange way. It's funny um, that you should talk about consolation there because that's there to a certain extent in a poem by Eugene O'Hara that you've yeah. chosen for us as well. Uh, and again, th- this doesn't, one of the things I like about this poem is that it doesn't give you, it doesn't lay out everything out on the page for you saying, here's what happened and here's what I did. You just get this little snapshot of a moment on your left one, God, what what was going on the, the, that's in the, in the thing. man's I, life? You know, the poem is called A Walk After Bad News. I don't know what the bad news yeah. was. And in fact, it's that not knowing that gives the poem its, its power. extra power because yeah. it, it be, it's, it's, not that, it's not that you don't say things in a poem to make the poem deep, as we would have said in school. You know, it's not, it's not about hiding stuff. It's about trusting the stuff that's visible early on at the surface, about trusting the details to tell the bigger story, the emotional story. And the emotional story takes time and you have to spend time with the poem. A walk after bad news. If we had known how happy we were when we were happy. If we had marked our skin with it so that it bruised the ambers of November. Would it have made a difference? I ring off the long distance call. Find my keys and leave this house with its obsessive silence, pleading for a wild noise from my throat. The rain batters the roof of the car, and I drive to the river. Soaked through, I walk the bankside and stop to watch the moon night swimming, her skin on the water like solder drop, dripping, excuse me. Keys have fallen somewhere, so I ditch the car, walk home, and the rain stops along the way. Refrigerators hum in locked-up bars. The trains are empty, nose to wall. And in the long distance, a bull, like a cello, lies in a field of snow. 
That's a poem called A Walk After Bad News by Eugene Harris, part of the anthology Local Wonders, poems of our immediate surrounds, edited by Pat Bourne, who's with me in studio this evening. I love the fact that we don't know everything about that poem. I love the fact that we don't know, did he find the car keys? What did he do Is the car? Did he have to, did he have to change his car? How did he fix that? You're yeah. just, you're left pondering, what, how was this man, what was going on in his head that he found him that, there, in that there, situation? There, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a brave moment, mm. a, a brave decision that you leave room for the reader. Yeah. As I say, that you give enough of the topography of the emotions, but you leave the space for the reader to enter and feel it. Is there, um, as we, we wrap up with a, with a poem called Sweeney as a Girl from Jackie McCarrick, which has a bit of a fun element yeah. to it for sure. But as, as we head in, as you head into that, is there an element here that, in fact, we, you know, we're looking for things that perhaps the pandemic has given us that are on the upside? Has there, is it too early to say that there's been kind of a reawakening in poetry or a, a new interest in poetry that maybe had waned slightly before that? I, I, I think so. I, I, I certainly think that it has confirmed, a kind of, uh, to use the word nobility may be wrong, but I'll chance it that there's a nobility about making poems in the face of something that we have no control over. That, that you know, if you think that people write poems addressing the departed, right, that that is, that mm. is one of the traditional forms of poetry. It's, you could say it's a nonsense because the person who is gone can't hear it, but there's still this power in the poem. It, yeah. it, it's it's, the, it's a, a central energy in the poetic tradition. Um, so poets and poetry has always stood up against impossible odds. And the way to deal with a big subject is with a small, focused response. And and I think that's what the best of these poems do. Yeah. Pull something big and intangible and focus it like a blade of, a blade of light, a blade of yeah. sunlight onto something. Uh, I suppose people will know of Sweeney as Willa Hivna will know him from there the king uh, exiles Sweeney's uh, Heaney's uh, Sweeney Sweeney Astray exactly you know a king exiled to the wilds of North East Ireland not in this final poem that you're going to read for us Sweeney as a Girl by Jackie McCarrick Yeah I I, I love this when we started talking about theatre and that and that that sense that you can take something that already exists and voice it and voice it in another way it has to connect enough to the original to have its energy and its roots but that you can do other things with it Sweeney as a Girl Up here with the crags and wind bush I look down on the amber world and I say truthfully to you I do not miss it. I hate its vacuous Facebook self. I hate its plagues and smoke and mirrors. For I have come to love what my grandparents had and my parents abandoned, the quiet, wild earth. For the brief time I am here, I have the real earth without double glazing the freedom of the broad valleys without capitalism. The grey in my hair is pure white wire, my smile a row of crags. All over Ariel I seek out the sparse woods and miss nothing of it at all down there in the town. Only my dark hair, a lover's hand, to stroke it. 
Sweeney as a girl, poem there by Jackie McCarrick, part of Local Wonders, poems of our immediate surrounds, edited by Pat Bourne, who's been with me in studio this evening and published, of course, by Daedalus Press. English poet, novelist, playwright and spoken word performer Kay Tempest has just announced a mini tour of Ireland beginning on Saturday, April the 30th, taking place in Galway, Cork, Galway and Belfast. The tour will coincide with the release of Kay's fourth album on April the 8th. That album is called The Line is a Curve. Let's have a flavour of the album. This is the current single, features Kevin Kevin Abstract and the American hip hop group Brock Hampton. It's a track called More Pressure. More pressure, more release, more relief, more belief. More distance, more reach The truth is, I don't know, it's so deep I know nothing, I used to think things were so clear I was so near to nowhere I could feel everything in me Pushing for certain, certain's a flimsy Rock solid ground beneath me now Tells me there's no ground at all More Pressure, the title of the track there from Kay Tempest. That's from the upcoming album The Line is a Curve. Kay will be playing four dates in Ireland between April 30th and May the 4th Galway, Cork, Belfast and Dublin. I think I've had her had Cape Tempest going to Gal- going to Galway twice, but no, Dublin is one of the venues. Full details on ktempest.co.uk. Now, treat for music lovers. The acclaimed Vanberg Quartet joined forces with the award-winning pianist Michael McHale to present a selection of works from Beethoven to Schumann. It'll be in with a chance of winning a pair of tickets to the 2pm matinee concert for this Saturday, that's at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, and a two-course lunch with a glass of wine at Casper and Gambini's modern Irish brasserie restaurant nearby. Following question, please. Beethoven used the words of a Schiller poem uh, for the fourth and final movement of his Ninth Symphony. That poem is called Ode to What? is the missing word there. O to something. Text uh, the answer along with your own name and address to 51551. I'll announce the winner before the end of tonight's programme. After two year absent, Ricky Gervais's hit comedy Afterlife returned to Netflix at the weekend. Created, written and directed and starring um, Gervais, who we spoke to on the show last week. Afterlife tells the story of an angry widower in a small town newspaper reporter named Tony. His daily interactions with the oddball residents of the fictional British village of Tanbury. The series picked up largely positive reviews from critics since its debut in 2019. This third and final outing marks a change for Gervais, who usually closes the door on a television comedy after two seasons. Should he have carried on that tradition or does he earn the right for this uh, third and final season? Chris Wasser has been watching and he joins me now. Um, just for those who maybe are, are, are unfamiliar, because I've met a number of people in, in recent weeks who were saying to me, I'm told I should try this afterlife. Should I give it a go? That's afterlife, the series, rather than any other type of afterlife. Um, should I give afterlife a go? And I've consistently said, yeah, do give it a go. Um, but for those who need to know what's it about, what would you say? Where, where, what's the, the kind of the pitch for this one? Uh, yeah, Chris. sure. I would actually, yeah, I would definitely say go right back to the start um, when the original premise was, as you mentioned at the top, Ricky Gervais playing this uh, this angry, lonely widower named Tony Johnson, and he lives in this, you know, in it's almost like you know uh, a postcard perfect uh, uh, village uh, called Tambury in the UK, which is not a real place. I'm sorry to say, but it looks as though it would be a lovely little village. And he is a fifty-something newspaper features editor, features writer, and his entire world has just been turned upside down following the death of his wife. Lee 
Lisa, played by Kerry Goldman, and she died following a lengthy cancer battle, and she left behind a series of video messages for Tony, which he watches every night over a bottle of wine um, with his dog, with his gorgeous German Shepherd dog, uh, Brandy, beside him. And she left behind all of these messages, you know, where she gives him advice from her hospital bed on how to carry on living, you know, in the world without her. But also, he, he aside from watching those, he watches, you know, videos of funny home videos they made together. And in season one, and to an extent season two, we kind of see Tony at his lowest. You know, he is uh, seriously contemplating suicide. He decides that, you know, he's the only one who's allowed to grieve for Lisa. And he also decides that every action that he now takes in a world without Lisa in it has no consequences. So he's decided that his superpower is that he can be mean as possible to those around him. What he doesn't count on, however, especially in season two is those around him I mean everyone from his postman to a local sex worker to you know his best friend uh, uh, and, and co-worker Lenny at the at the Tambury Gazette where he works he doesn't count on everyone being kind to him and basically lifting their fallen friend out of you know his depression but I suppose you know he, he went the Netflix route here and, and the whole question is when we get to season three has the story been told? Uh, is it all done? Is there is there more to give somehow in season three that we hadn't gotten seasons one and two? Yeah, it's interesting because Ricky Gervais with The Office, with Extras, with Derek, he always had this two-season rule. And he has spoken before about, you know, I think Faulty Towers came up in that, you know, Faulty mm. Towers was so short and it was in and out. And it's it's often seen as this, you know, perfect, uh, uh, this perfect comedy, this perfect sitcom. And Gervais has always had this idea that there is only, you know, there's only so much story you can make with comedy, with sitcom. So let's, why, why, why keep it going forever? So it was a surprise that Afterlife is returning for a third season. But at the same time, this is the first time he's gone down, you know, the streaming route. Uh, you know, all of the shows that I mentioned before, he'd always gone down the terrestrial route. So he sold, you know, The Office and Extras to BBC, ITV, Channel 4. But with, with something like Netflix, you're talking about, you know, a built-in global audience of 240 million subscribers. You're talking about a show mm. that will be seen in 190 territories. And that, you know, the streaming giant will probably spend a fortune on. So it was probably very difficult for Gervais to, you know, uh, resist that temptation to kind of tell, you know, get one more season. Now, for me, like before I had even watched season three, I thought... Is this is this a really a good idea? Because if you recall, at the end of season two, there is that corner that Tony, you know, Gervais' character takes mm. where he begins to see that there might be a chance to have, you know, yeah. another happily ever after with uh, with Emma, played by Emma Ashley Jensen, who's a nurse that looks after his father in a care home. And he begins to realise that, you know, life might actually be worth living. So... I just thought there was this lovely moment at the end of season two where he almost walks off into the sunset, and it's in and at the beginning of season three, it's as though nothing, nothing, yeah, none nothing of that ever changed. happened. Sean. It was almost as if that was yesterday. Now here's the next day. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and a touch of Groundhog Day about the way he behaves in in, in that respect. He also has regular um, meetings with a character called Anne, played by Penelope Wilton. And this is where the series is at its most philosophical in many ways. The two of them sit down on the bench. Uh, Penelope Wilton's character, Anne, has lost her husband some years before. And yeah. uh, Tony, obviously, has lost his wife in, in recent years. And they sit down and chat to hear, a, each other. Here's a, a, an interaction between the two of them, close to, the, I think, possibly in, in episode one of season three. Ricky Gervais, Penelope Wilton. I do feel like she's still here. And it's like I'm in two minds. One knows the truth. She died. Logical. There's no heaven. No reincarnation, no ghosts. I know that. But then I feel her inside me all the time. 
But she's still part of me, guiding me. Ah, oh, it's weird. That's because you're human and nothing really makes sense. Look at you, Kierkegaard. It's okay to have feelings, you know. Things that aren't logical. Science makes us understand how to stay alive longer. Feelings give us the reason to want to. Or not want to. I was doing so well. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Penelope Wilton and Ricky Gervais there in a scene from season three of Afterlife. Chris Wasser has been looking at the, the six episodes of the of the third season for us, and and that those are the moments of philosophy, and they they appear right throughout the the, the, the three seasons, Chris. And it struck me that there there's a side to Ricky Gervais, particularly in those scenes that I don't think we are used to. We're used to the the loud mouth, we're used to the David Brent from The Office character who's crude, who's cruel in his humour at time, who's who's really nasty and, and some of the jokes right across Afterlife as well are nasty but then you've those moments moments like that of absolute stillness which kind of pull you back into a different place. Yeah, they are, yeah. I, I, I found them a little bit more emotionally manipulative this time around but that's only because it was, you know, the idea of the widow and the widower sitting at a sitting at a, a park bench in this cemetery where they go to visit their other halves every morning and kind of, you know, philosophizing about life and kind of, you know, basically pulling each other out of out of their depression. That's quite lovely. And I've said this before: if the entire show was based around those two characters meeting every morning, Ricky Gervais, that would have been his, you know, his genius moment. That I, that that is a show that I would have watched because he is quite lovely in 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 these scenes. The only thing is. By the time we get to season three, it's like, mm, well, you know, they, they, it was lovely the first time. It was, you know, entertaining the second. Now it's just repeating itself. And as I said, we start to see the story doesn't even start to move backwards in season three. It actually starts to move around in circles. And yeah. it's as though, again, Tony has learned nothing. He's kind of in a worse state than we left him. It's, it's, it's as though the, the last episode in season two never happened. Yeah. But more so this time around in this season, I felt as though it was an awful lot cruder. And there was an awful lot of profanity in place of actual jokes. And I mean, I mean, Sean, I can I cannot get through the day without swearing. I love swearing, and and you know there isn't a, there, there's a part of me that mm. doesn't even trust people who don't swear. But it's very easy to spot when a comedy show is using right, profanity in place of jokes, and okay. and there's there's far too much of it this time around. Let's have a listen to uh, one of the other things that uh, the Ricky Gervais character does is that he goes out as uh, part of this local newspaper thing. He goes to unusual folk, if you like, in, in, the, in the parish and Tambury seems to have his fair share of them. In, in one of the interviews that, and he goes out with his colleague Lenny and they take a picture of the person and he interviews them and then he writes up the article. In this particular case, he goes to interview a local author, uh, Penny Spencer Wright, played by Kate Robbins. <laughs> Let us have her explain to you the type of books that she writes, erotic fiction <laughs> and doctors, lots of doctors involved. And here's the interview between the two of them. You haven't had any medical training? No. How do you get all the technical stuff right? Eh, just pick things up. Sure. Would you like me to read a little bit from my latest one? Yep. Open wide. Not that bad. That's filth, that bit. <laughs> Let's have a look. Oh, here's a good bit. So Dr Barnaby is um, operating on someone that all the top surgeons in the world said could not be saved. But Dr Barnaby disagrees. Nurse Stacy mopped his brow. Is that better, Doctor? 
Their eyes meet over the top of the masks you have to wear in operating theatres. Please, call me Barnaby. She blushes. Okay, we're going in. He injects the medicine into the patient's main artery. That should do the trick, said Barnaby. Okay, stitch him up, nurse. Dinner later? Oh, yes, please, she said. See you at eight. Does he live? Who, dear? The patient. Oh, I didn't say. Didn't bother with that. I'm sure he's fine if they got the medicine into the main artery. Exactly. I wonder why all the top surgeons around the world didn't think of that. Yeah, Dr Barnaby's special, isn't he? Best in the world. And a randy burger, too, which never hurts. Good. Take a picture? Yeah. Ricky Gervais and uh, Kate Robbins there in a scene from Afterlife season three. Uh, Chris Wasser, I, I don't know about you, I've watched the first three episodes and I was kind of with you on the, um, are we just getting a repeat of the old thing? Did it not kind of come into itself in the final three episodes and maybe move things along to a, a, a satisfactory conclusion? Yeah, look, I will say there are a few moments, especially in the final episode, and make no mistake, without spoiling anything, this is definitely coming to an end with this season. Mm. And Gervais has said there won't be a fourth one, so this is definitely the finale. There are a few moments that, you know, do kind of, you know, there might have been tears, but they didn't feel earned, Sean, because again, I just thought this season in particular was quite mean-spirited, quite broad in its comedy. One of the things, one of the storylines that worked a lot for me, but that might have been treated better if every episode had been a little bit longer. I know I'm saying it's repeating itself mm. this season, but if there had been an additional 10 minutes, you know, uh, where, where the story would have been allowed to flow naturally, I would like to have seen more of Diane Morgan's character, Cass, because she, you know, up until now has just been this, you know, oddball advertising chief at the Tambury Gazette, who kind of just, you know, is there for a one-liner every now and then and for Tony to make fun of. This time, she's treated like a proper character. And we begin to see the fact that, you know, the reason why she's kind of so, you know, she comes out with these oddities at, you know, newspaper meetings is because she's quite... She's quite lonely. She's looking to make yeah. friendships with these people and she's looking to have a relationship. And Gervais does explore her character very well and Morgan plays it very well, but there's just not enough room. I think the balancing act when it comes to exploring the, you know, the, the other residents of Tambury, it, it tries right. to, you know, uh, it, it tries to make room for everybody, but it kind of fails at doing that. I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth. It sounds to me like you're saying they could have stopped after two seasons, but maybe part of what's in season three could have been squeezed into those two seasons without it taking as long <laughs> to do. Yes, or you could have even done something that Gervais has done very well before, which he did with The Office create a lengthy special you could have had like a holiday he could have because it's launching now he could have used this you know he made one more hour of Afterlife and had it as a Christmas special but I think if you're coming to Afterlife for the first time look it's a weird thing to say but it wouldn't actually hurt to watch the first two seasons the first season was great the second one was okay you could even leave it at that and just abandon this third season altogether I kind of wish he hadn't broken this two season rule for this one Alright Chris pinning your colours to the mast there Chris Wasser on Afterlife season three is now available to stream on Netflix and of course follow Chris's advice you can go back and watch seasons one and two there as well this weekend beginning on Friday January the 21st continuing until Sunday the 23rd Music for Galway presents a weekend of music celebrating the music and legacy of Irish composer Charles Villiers Stanford the weekend will include talks by Stanford's biographer Jeremy Dibble who we spoke to a couple of weeks back here on the programme and there will be performances throughout the weekend uh, at, at the Town Hall Theatre in Galway and other venues around the city as well the weekend has been programmed by Music for Galway Artistic Director Finneen Collins who joins me now he has lined up some of the cream of Irish and international talent from performance for, for the performances amongst them soprano Sharon Carthy who's also on the line what was it about Stanford uh, specifically Finney to start out with what attracted you to him and his music 
Well, good evening, Sean. Um, well, I've been aware of Stanford for a very long time since I was a child. Um, and I've always felt that he was underestimated, underappreciated in this country. He's possibly the greatest composer we've ever uh, produced with all due homage to John Field. And um, I just don't feel that he gets the recognition he deserves, both as a composer and as a, uh, a teacher of so many um composers mm. after him. So I felt he was worthy of a, of a celebration. I touched on this with, with Jeremy Dibble when I was speaking with him, I suppose. Here in Ireland, and specifically the time at which he was operating, I guess, at that moment, just as they heading towards the period of the War of Independence, he, he was came from a very staunch unionist background. That may have hampered him in this country, whereas ironically, when he was in, in Britain and in England, he may have been considered too Irish. Do you think that those two things were, were problematic for him? I do. I think they certainly hampered him getting a foothold and a reputation here in Ireland. He also left Ireland quite young. He um, he left as soon as he finished school and went to university in, in, in the UK and went off to Germany and came back to London and never really returned to Ireland, although he always remained proud of his Irish roots. I don't think he ever really gained the reputation he deserved in, in this country and probably, as you say, was seemed too Irish for the, for the British and perhaps too British for the Irish. So it fell, fell between all the stools, possibly. But there is no question but that his, his legacy as a teacher, and I know again, Jeremy Dibble was very keen that we don't lose sight of, of Stanford the composer, but Stanford the teacher was hugely mm. important. Absolutely, he was, and I mean, the, if you read the list of composers we've, we've programmed this weekend, it, you know, it's a testament to his extraordinary legacy and such a variety of composers whom he taught, um, and such a variety of music, you know, including a, a choral concert with um, composers as interesting as Samuel Coleridge Taylor and and many others. You know, no, we've there's, there's a. There'll be a slight problem there with the Finian's line. I tell you, I'll go, I'll go to Sharon Carthy, who's who's with us as well this evening. Um, the the vocal writing of Stanford, obviously, this is the music in which you'd have a, a particular interest, Sharon. How does he write for the voice? How would you describe what he can do? Um, good evening. Um, the, the way he writes for the voice is really comfortable to sing um i think for a lot of the music that we have is um really a fantastic setting of irish songs to with a classical accompaniment there's an, an irish text with a classical accompaniment and what he does really well for me in that sense is marry the irishness of the text with a, a kind of a western art music classical accompaniment without kind of damaging either one or making it sound twee, which um, might not sound like a difficult thing to do, but he he does it really masterfully. Um, and then we also have a couple of German songs and it's, it's quite interesting how he kind of uses the German language sensibilities then in setting the German texts. So that's kind of for me the, the symbol of a really good vocal music mm. composer that they tie in the the music of the language that they're setting. Yeah, and the you- actual musical uh, and the, the the Irish, uh, when we talk about his Irish songs, we're talking about Irish songs in 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 the English language. But you couldn't get a more Hiberno English um, phrase than a soft day, which is one of exactly. the which is one of the songs that 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 you're going to sing. It, this is really this is a this is the a, an ode to rain, if we can think of such a thing that he's giving us here. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, you know, a soft day, thank God. And then, he, you know, the, the, the poem sets out the, 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 the leaves dripping with rain, the smell of the, the wet earth um, and the, the evocation of that in the, in the musical setting is just really, really wonderful. And he doesn't, he doesn't try and impinge upon the text. He just kind of gives the lovely support structure to it and lets the, the, the music, the, the vocal melody and the text just shine through. Well, let's, let's amazing. listen to a, a recording which features yourself, Sharon, accompanied by Finning. And this was um, something that you recorded back at Maynooth University last year. And it's the first of a set of four songs, we should say, by Stanford, A Soft Day, with Sharon Carthy performing the vocals, Finning Collins on piano. So the day there by Charles Villiers Stanford performed by Sharon Carthy with Finneen Collins accompanying on piano and Finneen I, I believe you're back with us uh, now he, t- he takes quite a risk even in uh, they are his own lyrics there uh, are they um, he takes quite a risk with this idea of just literally giving us the drip drip and, and describing that music yes it's very spe- very spare writing and very 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 evocative and very very individual really and you know just the piano dripping back to the voice and the voice dripping back to the piano. I think it's really beautifully done. One of the other, um, we, we mentioned uh, some of the, the pupils that he taught and uh, Rebecca Clark is in there, Frank Bridge is in there, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, as you mentioned, Finney. But probably well worth mentioning Muriel Herbert, who, uh, of course, was mm. um, quite well known or is quite well known for her settings of the words of James Joyce. That's right. And she was a, a wonderful composer who's perhaps not well known and one of Stanford's only female composers um, and didn't compose a huge amount, but she composed quite a number of song settings, including, as you say, some settings of Joyce. And um, it's said that she met Joyce in Paris and apparently he approved of her settings of his words, which was not always the case with, with James Joyce, who, of course, was very fussy about what one did with his texts. And apparently he liked very much um, her settings. And I think we're going to be performing two of her of her settings of Joyce um, Mm. lean out of the window and I hear an army charging from chamber music by by Joyce so uh, they're beautiful settings So we're talking there in many ways about Stanford's uh, influence as a teacher on Muriel Herbert on Rebecca Clark on Frank Bridge on Samuel Taylor Coleridge what about the other way around uh, work that influenced him how important was Schumann Finning as an influence on Stanford well, I think he was hugely influenced by the German school. He loved Schumann. He loved Brahms. He loved Dvorak. Uh, he was heavily, heavily steeped in that tradition. He studied in Leipzig uh, with Karl Reinecke. It's, it's said they didn't always uh, get on. I think he considered Reinecke a bit desiccated and uh, not perhaps the inspiration that he hoped he would be. Although we're performing his flute sonata at the weekend. Rian Odenin and myself will play his flute sonata, which is a wonderful piece. Yeah, so you're, you're, you and, will be giving... Um, but Schumann remained one of his great influences and uh, it said... 
I'll tell you, there's a delay on the line, Finney, so we're going to take you out there now and I'll, I'll go back to Sharon on this. Uh, Sharon Carthy, because I wanted to set up a piece of music from Schumann. You're performing um, Requiem from Opus 90. Tell me a little bit about uh, this again from a recording you made at Maynooth University last year with Finney. Um, yes, this, this text uh, is it's a, it's an old Catholic um, poem um, the author is unknown and it's the end song of the Opus 90 cycle and um, I, I, I think most most people listening would mm. agree that it's a very, very beautiful song. Um, well, let's, yeah. let's have a listen and it is, as I say, in that recording. And this is one of the pieces you'll be recording uh, or you'll be performing as part of the Music for Galway, uh, I believe, Sharon. Thanks for being with us this evening. That's Sharon Carty and also Finney Collins and here they are both together with Requiem from Opus 90 of Schumann. of Schumann there as performed by Sharon Carty, mezzo-soprano and Finneen Collins on piano and that one of the pieces that they will be performing at their concert of songs uh, music associated with Stanford and that concert Schumann uh, Stanford and uh, Rebecca uh, Muriel Herbert songs and Samuel Taylor Coleridge clarinet quintets all taking place on Saturday but lots of other events happening over the weekend and you can find out full details on Music for Galway .ie. The Galway Midwinter Festival runs from Friday through until Sunday. Uh, Ode to Joy was the Schiller poem set to music by Beethoven in his Symphony No. 9. And the winner of tonight's competition is Seamus Cody. Congratulations to you, Seamus. That brings us to the end of Monday Night's Arena. Leah Murphy and Paula Shields research. Janice Furphy was the broadcast coordinator. Mark McGrath was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Oren McGowan. I will be back with you once again 7 o'clock tomorrow night here on RT Radio 1. 